Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is The Josh Hammer Show. So what we last left off, we were still unpacking what had happened at the first Republican and presidential debate. We were kind of going through all the candidates, seeing how they fared and how they came across to Republican voters and to the American people. We've started to get some preliminary data as to who quote-unquote, won the debate, if anyone who came out looking like losers, who came out looking like winners, what that means for the national horse race polling, what that means for the all-important early states, states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and the like. So, you know, as we said in the last show, it's not like anyone, any one individual came out of this thing just kind of standing over the rest of the field like that classic Muhammad Ali photo pounding the chest, you know, the first round knockout. No, there obviously was nothing like that. But the polling that started to come in, there was a Fox News focus group that confirmed it as well. And it all seemed to suggest that the two people who the viewers most thought won, if they had to choose one person, were Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. We unpacked at great length their performances on the last show. Vivek Ramaswamy, it seems like every day with this guy, something new comes up, just further underscoring the fact that he is perpetuating a gargantuan fraud on the American people. I cannot say enough bad things about this guy. He is an oleaginous weasel par excellence. I hope he goes away tomorrow. But having said that, even for Vivek Ramaswamy, a handful of people said, and more than a handful, said that he actually won the debate. But if you look at the favorable, unfavorable metrics, even more people said that he actually lost the debate. So his net favorability started to go down. And we saw this one poll that came out in Iowa from Public Opinion Strategies, I believe was the name of the pollster, that showed that DeSantis picked up some, some decent ground. In the state of Iowa, it looked like he was up seven points, moving up to 24 percent in this very crowded field. Trump actually, according to that same survey, was down one point in Iowa for those paying attention to the numbers. And after that, it was it was basically Trump in the low 40s, DeSantis in the mid 20s. Then everyone else was fighting it out for single digits. From a national perspective here, the numbers, uh, you know, in only the small handful of polls that we've seen since the debate concluded doesn't seem like there was necessarily a, a ton of change. One poll from Insider Advantage showed a slightly smaller margin, but I mean, Trump's still up 27 points in that compared to his 35 to 40 point lead in most of the other polls. So still waiting on, on some more data here, but we, we have enough at this point. I think we have enough to try to make some observations and some projections as to how this thing might go from here over the next 
four and a half months as we approach the First of the Nation Iowa caucuses happening there in the Hawkeye State in mid-January. This is the column that I wrote this past Friday. I've talked about the possible paths forward for the Republican presidential field. And, you know, we're going to get to this a little later in the program, but you simply cannot ignore the fact, obviously, that Donald Trump continues to be the man of the hour. The cameras are on him. That is what the the clickers on the keyboards are, are clicking away about. The cameras are always focused on this guy. He had his return to Twitter, or we're now calling it X, I guess. He, he had his return after the mugshot heard around the world there in Fulton County, Georgia, this past Thursday evening. Again, we're going to get into that a little later in the show, but for present purposes, he still continues to command basically full attention. And from that perspective, even going back to that public opinion strategies poll that showed DeSantis gaining a net of eight points on Trump there in Iowa, seven up for DeSantis, one down for Trump, then the question becomes, as I posted in my column last Friday, the question becomes, you know, did Aesop get it right? The infamous fable about the tortoise and the hare that slow and steady wins the race. I mean, at this current trajectory, let's assume just for the sake of argument that Trump sits out debates for the foreseeable future. It certainly seems like he's going to sit out the next one. It is in late September at the Reagan Presidential Library in Southern California. Trump and the guys who run that presidential library have sparred in the past. There is really no indication whatsoever that he might show up for that particular debate. So let's assume for the sake of argument that he doesn't show up for the next, call it three or four debates or so. And let's assume for the sake of argument that things stand as is and continue on this course. So DeSantis continues to either quote unquote win or or just generally speaking perform adequately perform better than the rest of his competitors. Does slow and steady win the race in particular by the Iowa caucuses where the DeSantis operation is making a, a huge play has a massive infrastructure on the ground and really just seems based on the metrics the data and kind of just the word of mouth that I'm vibing, so to speak, they are putting a huge bet on Iowa. It is worth pointing out, of course, that that bet did not necessarily work out for Ted Cruz back in 2016 when Cruz won the Iowa caucuses narrowly over Donald Trump, only to then lose New Hampshire in decisive fashion. And that primary was all but over by early to mid-March or so. But holding that history aside, is slow and steady going to win the race for Ron DeSantis in Iowa? And it might. Obviously, we don't know. But it's hard to see. It's hard to see for a very simple reason. And that very simple reason is math. It's just math. I mean, let's say that public opinion strategies basically got it right, where they had Trump polling in around 41 to 42 percent or so. So one person would still have to consolidate the overwhelming majority of the rest of the vote. And last I checked, there were still eight candidates on that debate stage. That's a really, really hard thing to do. And, you know, the gold standard poll in Iowa is from the Des Moines Register there. The pollster is J.N. Seltzer. She's been doing this for a very, very, very long time. They are legitimately one of the most accurate pollsters in the country. They really know what they're doing when they're talking about Iowa. 
And we recently had the first poll come out from the Des Moines Register. Now, admittedly, this was before the debate. It was before the Fulton County, Georgia mugshot. So your mileage may vary. Take it for what it's worth. Trump was, had 42% in Iowa. DeSantis was at 19 So I am not at all confident that slow and steady could win the race for DeSantis. I hope that I am wrong if things stay according to the current trajectory, but hard to be confident. So that takes us then to the two other possibilities for how this thing might go over the next four and a half months. The first major possible curveball here is the continued escalation of Donald Trump's legal drama. So just this week, as we are recording, that drama is playing out in multiple courtrooms. There are co-defendants there in Georgia, such as his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who are filing motions to remove that case from state court to federal court. On early on Monday morning, we saw negotiations there in Washington, D.C. with Judge Chutkan pertaining to Jack Smith's January 6th post-2020 election federal indictments. And they now have a trial date for the beginning of the January 6th trial. That's going to start in Washington, D.C. March 4th, I believe, was the date still to be determined in the other jurisdictions. But Fonnie Wilson the very liberal prosecutor there in Fulton County, Georgia, for whatever her opinion on this is worth, is trying to expedite things as potentially quick as October. So we got to see how quickly this thing starts to escalate there. And the faster it does, the more that Donald Trump is stretched thin from courtroom to courtroom, the more that his super PAC is bleeding dry. If it's getting really, really bad, you kind of have to wonder if at some point the donors, Ronald McDaniel and the RNC, do they ever start to really put those phone calls into Mar-a-Lago and try to persuade him to drop out? It really does make you wonder. We've never been in this situation before. But finally, and we'll leave it here on this note, finally, the final possibility, the final way this can go over the next four and a half months is genuine consolidation of the non-Trump field. Jokers like Asa Hutchinson, Francis Suarez, Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, all these guys, get the hell out of the race. What are you guys doing up there? You're wasting everyone's time. If Asa Christie, people like that who oppose Trump, if they take themselves even remotely seriously, at what point do you stop this self-be-clowning show and just line up to support the only guy, the only guy, whether you like him, dislike him, or somewhere in between, the only guy who has any chance in hell of defeating Donald Trump in Iowa, and that obviously is Ron DeSantis. Now, at a bare minimum, I know people like Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, or the used car salesman himself, Vivek Ramaswamy. I understand they might be going for vice president or cabinet, but at a bare minimum, you jokers, get the hell out of the race, do the right thing, back the only guy who can defeat Donald Trump in Iowa. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. Fulton County, Georgia. This is the most perilous of the four indictments for former President Trump. We've discussed a little bit on this program. My basic calculation for saying that is because the president of the United States can obviously issue a pardon for federal crimes. That is right there. The pardon power in the Constitution. Now, admittedly, there's no such thing as a self-pardon power right there on the Constitution. But most legal scholars, including yours truly, would agree that he does have that authority. So, You assume that even if Trump were to somehow win the 2024 election, which I believe is a long shot for myriad reasons, but even if he were to somehow do that, you think that he would be able to pardon himself for the two Jack Smith special counsel federal probes in Florida and Washington, D.C. He would have no such luck there in Georgia, which is a state crime. And some have floated some arguments. I've seen Mark Levin put out this argument that, no, actually, the president can pardon himself for state crimes as well. It's a really contorted legal argument. I I frankly think it is frivolous and not worth taking particularly seriously. Other problems for Trump in Georgia, this is a very blue county, Fulton County, where Atlanta is about a 75-25 Biden over Trump voting county. Now, they're using a statute, RICO, and which was devised at the federal level. The federal RICO was devised to crack down on organized crime. It's, a, it's an anti-racketeering statute, but the Georgia equivalent is written in an extraordinarily broad fashion. The legislators there seem to want to give prosecutors leeway to really go all about the country and tie out even non-jurisdiction, non-Georgia events, and basically allowing them to tie together outside of Georgia events as part of a broader conspiracy. So a lot of a lot of kind of runway there for Fonnie Wilson and the other prosecutors to work with. Other major problems for Trump in Georgia are the fact that Trump has basically pissed off the entire Republican elected official class there in Georgia from Brian Kemp, the governor. I mean, recall that Donald Trump ran a primary challenger to Brian Kemp in the Republican gubernatorial primary in Georgia over a year ago, around May of 2022. He ran the former senator there, David Perdue. David Perdue got his ass absolutely hammered by Brian Kemp. The guy lost by like 45 points. Maybe maybe it was even more than that. So Brian Kemp is a very popular governor there in Georgia. He's like plus 15 to 20-ish in the favorable-unfavorable splits. Georgians happen to like him a lot, and he is no fan of Donald Trump for, for fairly obvious reasons. Trump ran a, a an incredibly vindictive and, frankly, myopic campaign to nuke him from that slot for the most petty of cynical reasons possible, simply because Kemp and others there in Atlanta did not do his bidding when it came to finding 11,000-plus votes to change the election result there in Georgia. The lieutenant governor also, Kemp's lieutenant governor in Georgia, no fan of Trump, and the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, who is the very person on the receiving end of that infamous phone call from Trump trying to find 11,000-plus votes. So Trump is basically pissed off 
All of the Republican officials there in Georgia, they very well might serve as witnesses potentially for the prosecution. Uh, We have no idea yet, obviously, just speculation. That would be pretty explosive if so. And another problem for for Trump there in Georgia is the fact that there are so many co-defendants. There are, I believe, 18 co-defendants there. You know, there's a there's a serious risk of some of those co-defendants taking some sort of immunity deal and basically flipping and cutting a deal to then testify against Trump. That's also going to partially depend, perhaps, on Trump's super PAC paying the legal fees. Maybe if they don't pay the legal fees of someone, then that person has a higher likelihood of, of flipping for fairly obvious reasons there. Now, it's worth talking a little bit about, you know, Trump had this mugshot that went viral, and I understand why it went viral. Okay, I was eating dinner when it happened. I turned around. I had Fox News on the background. I saw this photo, and I just started staring at it. I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. You see that photo of a president of the United States taking a mugshot, which obviously they did not have to do. It was obviously done for pure purposes of spite, for public humiliation, simply because they can But still, looking at that photo, couldn't take my eyes off of it. I mean, just, man, I mean, like, you know that's going to go down in the annals of American history, for better or for worse, as an all-time iconic photo. And And his lovers and haters, I think, would agree on that sentiment, frankly. But holding Trump being at the center of all this stuff in Georgia aside, to me, the most troubling part of what's happening in Georgia is the fact that among the co defendants here are his lawyers. People like my friend Jenna Ellis, like my other friend John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, even Sidney Powell. Now, Sidney Powell was offering some crackpot theories, to put it mildly. We all remember that infamous press conference where you had kind of the makeup dripping down Rudy Giuliani's face. He's sweating profusely up there, and Sidney Powell is there talking about Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro and all, all this bat crap, banana, just utterly insane stuff. And, you know, maybe there are rules of civil procedure or appellate procedure that could get her fined. I mean, lawyers have various mechanisms for for sanctioning people for making completely frivolous arguments. And holding that aside, though, we are seriously talking here about indicting and criminally prosecuting lawyers for defending an unpopular client. Here he happens to have been the former president of the United States. I want to underscore that here. Whether it is John Eastman in both the Jack Smith federal probe and the state of Georgia, whether it is Jen Ellis just in Georgia, whether it is Rudy Giuliani in both jurisdictions, Jeffrey Clark and so forth, whoever. The nature of the legal profession, as a lawyer myself, is to zealously advance arguments to defend your client's interests. Zealous representation is the sine qua non. It is the very encapsulation, the distillation of the legal profession. Anyone who has ever been to law school, who has taken legal ethics, who studied for a bar exam, you know that that is the case. And again, holding aside the insane Sidney Powell stuff, the Hugo Chavez votes from the grave, the, the, the Dominion, the machines, all that, You are allowed to advance non-frivolous arguments, arguments that are plausible, maybe not super persuadable, but are plausible. If no one has definitively ruled, a court or any other political or judicial body, 
that you are wrong, essentially, you are allowed to advance it in your zealous representation. That is the entire adversarial system of law that we borrowed from England hundreds of years ago. So I I just cannot get over the danger that the left is posing here. What if you are a young conservative lawyer? Are you rethinking your career right now? Is this going to affect what clients you take on? It's just unbelievable stuff. The former president is getting a lot of the headlines, but to me, to me, the criminalization of the legal profession is the most dangerous aspect of everything happening there in the state of Georgia. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Josh Hammer Show. Again, they are trying to criminalize the legal profession in America. And if that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron to you, then that's because it is an oxymoron using the weapons of the law enforcement apparatus to criminalize the legal profession. And ironically, it must be said, many of the people who are most outspoken in favor, in favor of trying to lock up the quote-unquote insurrectionist, John Eastman, or others like Jenna, many of those who are most outspoken that I have seen among the blue-checked Twitterati or Xerati, whatever the hell we're calling it now, many of these people happen to be law professors. People like Leah Littman, the University of Michigan, Total Lib. What a shame and a disgrace to your profession you are. If you are a barred attorney, and you know, by the way, I think back to after I passed the bar exam back in Texas when I was living there, I think back to when I was actually sworn in. I was working at a law firm at the time. They bring in like a, a, a local judge we had to sign an oath document and you kind of raise your hand. You, you, you do like the whole oath thing. If you took that oath as a lawyer, and it doesn't matter what kind of lawyer you are. If you went to law school, you took the bar exam, you passed, you took that oath, and now you're trying to criminalize fellow lawyers' representation, I mean, go to hell. You, you are an absolute disgrace. I just cannot fathom that level of vocational self-hatred, that level of myopia, that that level of just wanting to play with fire. Obviously, these idiots are not thinking about what might happen when the shoe falls on the other foot, which takes me nicely to what I want to talk about next, speaking of shoes on the other foot, which is how we possibly come back from here, how we possibly come back 
from the brink of a regime that is openly prosecuting political enemies. And by the way, it's not just the Trump thing at all. We recently saw a headline that the Merrick Garland Department of Justice is opening an investigation into Elon Musk's SpaceX for potentially violating, undermining, ignoring, or some variation thereof our immigration laws pertaining to asylees and refugees. And the language that the media has used to report on this DOJ investigation is that he is, Elon Musk that is, and SpaceX are allegedly, quote, discriminating in favor of U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Let let me break that down for you. The federal government has chosen to open an investigation, a potentially criminal investigation. It could be civil, criminal, it's it's unclear, it's very early. They're opening an investigation into one of Elon Musk's major companies for preferring to hire Americans over foreigners. I, I mean, the mind just reels. And you obviously have to realize that the only reason they are choosing this particular target has nothing to do with the alleged violation of the immigration laws on the books. It has everything to do, by contrast, with the fact that Elon Musk has become a critic of many aspects of reigning political, cultural, and social orthodoxy in this country and the ruling class and Biden regime in particular. Now, I'm not painting Elon Musk out as some sort of right-winger, conservative, nutjob, anything like that. He, he is not. He is, he is a politically heterodox man who has a longstanding relationship with the Chinese Communist Party and China. I, I'm not going to get into all that right now, but, but he is very critical about many aspects of the chaos unfolding around us, and that obviously is why he is being targeted by Joe Biden and his henchman Merrick Garland and the Attorney General and various other clowns there north of Richmond, so to speak, in Washington, D.C. So what do we do to get out of this mess? I, I, I want to th- put forward two basic ideas. I'm not saying that this is a full answer to our woes, but I want to just kind of get us thinking along these lines. The first thing that we have to do to try to take us back from this brink, this over-the-top political persecution, this sprawling lawfare, the weaponization, all of that. This is going to sound so dumb and overly simplistic, but I genuinely think it needs to be said. The first thing that we have to do is start winning elections again. This goes back to an episode that we did on this show maybe a month, month and a half ago or so. So many on our side have imbibed this self-destructive victimhood mentality where we are all victims, we are all, we are all martyrs, We're going to lose no matter what. They're out to get us. All the forces lined up in a row are there against us. Now, there's a lot of truth to this. The prevailing orthodoxy of elite institutions and the Biden regime, cultural institutions, all of that, 
is, is certainly hostile to our interests. But that totally becomes a self-defeating proposition. I look at people like Carrie Lake out in Arizona, the failed gubernatorial candidate who can't stop talking about Stop the Steal. She's still trying to get installed as the governor. It's been almost a year since she lost, for God's sake, bilking fixed-income retirees to try to fund this this lawsuit that, if it doesn't get sanctioned out of court, is certainly going nowhere to bare minimum. So let's talk about actually winning. Because winning is a necessary precondition for doing. In order to do something, you have to win. You have to have power. Then we can get into all the fun stuff about what to do with power when you have it. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. It's not just sitting back on your ass and doing nothing. As way too many Republicans still to this day do. But you have to start winning first. Which is one of the many reasons why I support Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump in this particular race. I genuinely do not think that Donald Trump can actually win. So winning just more generally, and look, if you want to make a case that Donald Trump is actually more likely to defeat Joe Biden than Ron DeSantis is because of XYZ reasons, he broke through the blue wall, the Rust Belt 2016, he can do so again in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. If you want to make that argument, freaking go for it. That's fine. I, I, I am willing to entertain that. I don't agree with it, but I get it. But the zombies, you know, what, what DeSantis called the listless vessels, who don't care about winning, don't care about anything other than just this performative, oh, hi, here I am, I'm a member of your tribe, and therefore I, I vote for Trump no matter what, everything else excluded. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not here for that. Just talk about winning, for God's sake. Really, it matters. Finally, if we actually do win at the federal level and the state, county, and local level and so forth there, then what do we do from there? And the point here is that the pendulum is so far wildly off balance at this point. Our side has just been taking it and taking it and taking it. And they think unless we hit back, this is how human nature works, Unless you hit back, unless there are repercussions for your overstepping, for your actions, you're just going to keep on giving it and dishing it out. So we have to start doing more of what I and others have been calling for for years, which is a prudential use of political power. And yes, use of the prosecutorial apparatus at the federal, state, county level, whatever, to reward Justness and righteousness and punish evil and enemies within the confines of the rule of law and within the confines of the great virtue of prudence. To put like a very concrete example on that, what does Josh possibly mean by this? Well, obviously, the House should impeach the crap out of Joe Biden for everything going on there in Ukraine, Romania and China. That's the lowest of all low hanging fruit. See this Hunter Biden thing to fruition. And why are we limiting this to, quote-unquote, special counsel David Weiss? Look what the left is doing. They got a special counsel, Jack Smith. They got Fonnie Wilson in Georgia, you know, cooking up some indictments on very similar grounds, post-2020 election conduct. Surely there is an entrepreneurial, hungry, young, right-wing prosecutor out there somewhere willing to drag down Hunter Biden based on some sort of fraud, tort, far, uh, whatever. Similarly, what about Anthony Fauci? Why isn't some deep red West Texas 
jurisdiction. There's got to be some power-hungry DA out there. Make an example out of someone like Fauci. Again, I'm, this is a terrible situation that we are in here. The point is that to make them feel the pain, give them some in the way of repercussions. You have to fight fire with fire at some point because the only way out sometimes really is through. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Plastic straws are more friendly to environment than paper straws. According to a new study, after analyzing 39 different brands, apparently paper straws were significantly more likely to contain toxic forever chemicals than those using materials like plastic. I mean, this kind of feels like the laws of the universe returning to a modicum of sanity. I mean, how long did we use these thoroughly idiotic paper straws? I, I mean, it's been it's been like years now. Right? It depends on the it depends on the jurisdiction. I mean, is there a single person out there who has ever used a paper straw and pleasantly reported on the experience? Because I I, I mean, I would love to meet that person. Sir, do you enjoy the fact that the paper is internally crumbling inside of your liquid? Do you enjoy the fact that it stops working probably 30 to 60 seconds after you start sipping your Coca-Cola? Did you enjoy the fact? I mean, how dumb that do you have to be? I mean, who was the idiot in the first place who thought that paper straws? Paper. If, if you guys haven't noticed, water and paper don't get along well. <laughs> I, I mean, it really just boggles the mind here, honestly. Plastic straws, I mean, I know in my own private capacity, I have continued using plastic straws. I certainly have no intention of ever moving away from plastic straws. And, you know, this just shows just the short-sightedness as well of those who think that they are doing good and turns out they're not actually doing a whole ton of good. And the new trend as well that I've seen in some places is metal straws. I don't know if any of y'all have had the thorough displeasure of using a, a metal 
straw. It, it is just as terrible, frankly, as it sounds. I, I, I certainly hope that that does not catch on. The, 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 the metal straws end up having to go in the dishwasher. It's just a whole mess. Guys, stick with what is basic. Stick with what is best. Plastic straw. Don't overthink it. I mean, unbelievable. ACLU sues Indiana Department of Correction over ban on transgender surgeries. For context here, it was House Bill 1569, authored by Representative Peggy Mayfield. It was signed into law this year. It says that the the Indiana Department of Corrections may not use its own taxpayer-funded resources to facilitate so-called, quote-unquote, gender-affirming surgeries. If you are the kind of person who thinks that the medical profession should be engaged in chemical castration, in phalloplasty, the creation of fake penises, and vaginoplasty, the creation of fake vaginas. If you think that taxpayer dollars should be going towards this, uh, actually, hold that aside. If you think the medical profession in general, private or public dollars, should be going towards this, then you haven't actually done your homework. You know, this is one area where the Europeans are actually way ahead of the Americans. The UK, Finland, other European countries have actually said that they are going to put a halt on these procedures at a bare minimum for those under 16 to 18 years of age or so, but potentially depending on the jurisdiction, up to and including adults as well. Because the returns that we have, the, the accumulating empirical evidence, simply suggests that these do not work as intended. And who could have possibly saw that one coming? You're going to chop off a penis, you're going to insert a fake vagina, you think that this person's going to be happy? No, actually, many of, again, the rapidly accumulating social science data that we're seeing indicates that depression rates and tragically, in many circumstances, suicide rates actually only increase in the long run after these things are done. And then you take that and you say that taxpayer dollars should go to this, which is what the ACLU is suing for, the one-time bastion of civil liberties in America. I mean, the most extreme version of this, which I've seen, I actually vaguely recall a case, I think I might have even seen the documents toward the end of my Fifth Circuit clerkship as a federal case back in Texas on this. The most extreme version of this argument is when the Eighth Amendment comes in and these idiots say that it is, quote, cruel and unusual punishment, therefore is an Eighth Amendment federal constitutional violation to deprive a, quote unquote, transgender inmate of quote-unquote gender-affirming care. I mean, you really have to wonder what planet these people are living on. Ultimately, it makes more sense only when you pause to consider the fact that these arguments are simply not coming in good faith. They are not. Bernie Sanders to New Hampshire, the agenda America needs. So the 81-year-old, the octogenarian, commie-loving neighbor from Vermont is there in the the first-in-the-nation primary voting Granite State. Unclear exactly why he is. I saw a political playbook, the morning newsletter, write this up. They're saying that the Biden campaign, to the extent that bare bones operation of a campaign exists, they're saying that Biden and the campaign folks are not annoyed by Bernie Sanders, that he's just doing his loyal duty as as a surrogate, that he's speaking to a different part of the Democratic Party base, the progressives, the far left, that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily reach. 
you know, I'm sorry. I mean, maybe that is true. But if I were part of the Biden campaign and thank God that I'm not, but I, I would see this as a little weird. And as someone who was one of my top rivals from 2020 campaigning there in New Hampshire, where all the talk is, will they replace Biden? Will they not replace him? And, you know, Bernie Sanders is 81. He's even older, I think by one year, right? He's one year older than Joe Biden is. And he's crazier. I mean, we're talking here about a dyed-in-the-wool communist lunatic who had his honeymoon in the USSR at the height of the Cold War, praised Fidel Castro for decades. If I remember correctly, back when Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, he hung the hammer and sickle commie flag in his mayor office. So this man is an absolute nut job. But say what you will about him. He actually has energy for the age of 81. Can't say that about Biden. So if I'm Joe Biden, I would view this, frankly, as very weird. But again, based on political playbooks reporting, they're just viewing it as a standard kind of surrogate operation. Pope says backward U.S. conservatives have replaced faith with ideology. So as a Jew, this is not necessarily my fight. I, I can give my my limited opinion, I guess, on, on Pope Francis, which is that he's obviously a liberal. This is obviously a man. I, I, I again, I don't know my my Catholic theology super well. I think I think his liberation theology is kind of the sect of Catholic theology that that he comes from. There, he's a Jesuit, which is definitely on the theologically liberal end of the of the Catholic spectrum. I mean, the man is basically a socialist when it comes to a lot of his statements and and his support. I think from the past. It's a total, total change, of course, from Pope Benedict, who Francis replaced. Benedict was was a true traditionalist, most kind of Latin mass attending American Catholics and really just kind of theologically and politically conservative Catholics around the world tended to really love and, and admire Benedict. Francis, uh, not so much. So this, unfortunately, just continues to be more of the same for him. Diversity teacher says he wants to burn things down for equity agenda after staff trashes his DEI class. So this is a Colorado public school diversity teacher in private email saying that she was struggling with the urge not to burn things down, which didn't represent... Okay, look, if you are this much of an activist, if you care this much about the tenets of so-called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you care this much about trying to wokeify the world to trans the kids to get affirmative action back to make race discrimination in favor of certain minorities and against you know jews christians asians and whites if you care that much about all of this stuff and you're a public school teacher then may i suggest you look in the mirror and that you have chosen the wrong profession you might want to start by just switching jobs. I mean, I had a bare minimum. Finally, corporate DEI initiatives are facing cutbacks and legal attacks. DEI job postings have actually dropped by 38% since last July. Huzzah. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, that is a fantastic statistic that makes me genuinely happy. I think that number is only going to increase, by the way, in the aftermath of the affirmative action cases from Harvard and North Carolina. It's worth pointing out my good friend Adam Ortara is a federal trial lawyer. He has been part 
of getting the same folks who brought the Harvard affirmative action litigation. They're now suing Perkins Coie and some other top law firms for using race in private, in private law firm personnel HR decisions. Be very, very interesting to see where that goes as well.